0: Well, if you missed last week, last week we, uh, we kind of celebrated our 30th birthday as a church. And then we introduced a brand new mission statement. So if you're gone, you're like, wait, so I was gone one week and you changed the mission statement? Yeah, we knew you were going to be gone, so we thought we could get away with it. So we said, here, we're doing it today. No, I'm just kidding. But we did change it. And uh, we also updated our core values. We used to have nine of them that nobody really knew. And so we've got five now that uh, we think you'll hear a lot, you'll see a lot, and really define who we are as a church family. But if you remember, do you remember our mission statement? Did you take a chance to memorize it? It says, we are sent to love people and invite them to follow Jesus with us. That's who we are. That's, That's who we are. That's our mission. That's what Jesus commands us to do and what we're going to do as a church. Well, one of the cool ways we've been able to do that as a church, before we dive into the text this morning... Is about 10 years ago now. I had the opportunity to go to India for the first time. And when I came back, I told you about uh, some of the boys there and an orphanage there that, we, that needed a church to support it, needed funding. And uh, came back and generously, as a church, we started supporting and funding this orphanage of about 20 boys at the time. Well, fast forward a little while, that, that group grew to about 40 boys. And we took a team back in 2013 and we got to see where these boys were living. They were renting a home and it was a, it was a small home, uh, 40 boys in about, if I remember right, you guys can correct me who went with me. I feel like it was about 800 square feet, maybe not even that big. I know, I know my house is bigger and probably your house is bigger too than the house that these 40 boys were living in. And so we, we challenged you. We said, Hey, could we do something better? Could we do something better for them? We are investing in their lives and, uh, uh, we're funding the orphanage there. Could we do something better for him? And, and generously, over the course of about six months, we raised $50,000 to build a boy's orphanage. And you can see it there. And there's the boys. Those are the 40 that moved in, as I recall. Um, now there's 60. Did you know that? They just keep multiplying. They've got space for more. So in India, they just say, well, bring them in. Let's go. So... I bring this up for a couple things. I'm going to tell you about something else too. But if, if you're interested, we support this orphanage. We support the boys, uh, uh, totally above and beyond our regular giving and regular budget. So if you're interested in supporting one of those boys, the cost is, is $20 a month. And a hundred percent of that money goes to, to providing for their care. Um, and you can mark that on your envelope. It says it on the giving envelopes, but maybe you're, you're new within the last few months or something. You've never really heard us talk about this. So, so there's the orphanage and the boys, and there's room to support more kids now. There's 60 there. And uh, they're making buy on support for about 40 and, I think, pulling in support from other places to help that happen. But, but that would be cool if you're interested in doing that. You can do that. Um, the other thing to let you know about, though, is that at this orphanage, a church meets. And, uh, yeah, you can go back to that slide. That's the boys in church holding up their Bibles that uh, you helped give them for Christmas a couple years ago. I don't know if you remember that, which is pretty cool. But there's a church that meets there for the boys on Sunday mornings, and uh, there's a few others from the community that come, but not many. And the reason for that is in India, in their culture, part of the ways that... Um, that they understand who God is, especially for somebody outside the culture when they're, before they become a Christian, is when I go to worship God, I go to a temple. I go to a, a place, a specific place where I worship him. And by having a church in the orphanage, it's still fine, it still works, but it's not maybe as strategic as it would be if they had their own building for a church on that property uh, because it would give them more credibility with their community, more credibility in terms of, of outreach to other people. And so what we're bringing before you today is is Joab emailed me um, a few months ago, or I guess almost a few months ago now, a couple months in July, late July. And he asked, he said, he explained this this problem to us. He's really thankful for all that we've done. And he said, would you consider um, funding the building of a church? I don't know if you remember, but we've actually done this twice for churches over there, for church plants. We funded the building of a church building. And we're going to be, hopefully, Lord willing, adding on and renovating our facility sometime in the next year. And uh, the cost to do it there is unbelievably less than in North America. To, to build a church uh, facility that would, that would uh, be to their needs, it'd be about $10,000. Now, I, we emailed Joab back. We talked about it as a board, and we emailed him back. We said, Joab, what could you do for 15 or 20? And he says, well, we could, we could build a bigger church, reach more people, right? We could have a a concrete roof instead of a metal roof. And I said, well, let me go to our church. And uh, we talked about this as a board. We decided, let's come to you guys and see what could we do. And we're even going to just put a timeline on it. And we're going to say, what could we do by that second Sunday in October? So over the course of the next four weeks, four Sundays after today, what could we do? Or maybe that's the third Sunday in October. I don't remember. But what could we do? And so that's all I'm going to say, and we'll bring it up each Sunday a little bit over the next few weeks, but if you would be led to give towards that, um, whatever we raise, we'll, we'll celebrate, and then we'll send that, and they would be able to begin construction as early as uh, November or December uh, based on their their weather schedule and everything over there. And then, Lord willing, uh, we may be able to take a small team again uh, with my, uh, my church I grew up in, in Iowa, a free Evangelical Free Church called Summit, that I've been to India with a couple times, and uh, take a few of us with again next November, and actually go see our orphanage, go see this church building, and uh, be able to come back and report to you about it. Wouldn't that be cool? So, you with me? Listen, there's no compulsion. There's no, like, you got to give, like we're twisting your arm. No. This is, if, if you would like to give. Give. Give generously. And it'd be for a church to be planted there that, who knows, maybe some of these boys uh, would grow up. By the way, it's a church with a vibrant kids ministry, right? <laughs> and so, so uh, maybe some of these boys would, would be raised up in that church, and they'd become pastors and plant churches throughout India. And how cool is it that the Lord would give us a part in that? All the way around the world we're sent. But we're also sent right here. We're sent to love people. And we're sent to invite them to follow Jesus with us. And then we introduced five core values last Sunday. And the first one, uh, we talked about being sent last week, that we are sent. And this first one, it's all about Jesus. As a church, it's all about Jesus. That's who we are. And that's what we're going to dive into today from Colossians chapter 1. But really, if we only had one core value, one value that described who we are as a church, this is the one that we would pick. Because all of the others actually tie right back into this one. Don't they? Here's the second one. Uh, God wrote it all down. He wrote it all down in a book. Everything we need to know for life and joy and and how to know God, he wrote it down. Everything we need. He wrote it down in a book. And guess what? You know what the the focus of that book is? Jesus. That book is all about Jesus. Now you're like, okay, well, some of those stories though, Josh, like Solomon had a thousand wives. That's about Jesus? Okay. Okay. It's not about Jesus, but it points us to Jesus, right? So that's what I mean when I say the Bible is all about Jesus. It all points us to Jesus. The, so that, that's all about Jesus. All people matter. All of us are created. We're going to see this this morning in God's image. And God so loved all people, He so loved the world that He sent His Son. And everyone matters. And you know what that means? That means no matter uh, uh, what age they are, from conception to the grave, they matter. No matter what race they are. No matter what sin they struggle with. There is no one we wouldn't reach out to in love and invite them to follow Jesus with us. All people matter. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Number four, we all need friends. Did you know Jesus had friends? Having friendship is imaging Jesus. Jesus was had so many friends. He was even called a friend of sinners. That was one of his titles that people gave him. A friend of sinners. That could tell us again that all people matter. But, but even in the Trinity, he has an eternal friendship with the Father and with the Spirit. He's always in friendship with the Trinity. It's all about Jesus. And number five, no sacred cows. No sacred cows. That's a value of our church. In other words, we're not going to hold something sacred that would get in the way of, of us worshiping and honoring and obeying Jesus, right? Our preferences, we put them down. Our, our desires, we put them down. Our songs, we put them down. Will you fill in the blank? We put them down. And we say, if it gets in the way of us worshiping you and moving forward following you, Jesus, um, we take it out back and we shoot it and we go forward. And we let it move for the last time and then we go on, right? Right? That's who we are, no sacred cows. Why? Because it's all about Jesus, not about my preferences, not about my agenda. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus says, the Lord says in Isaiah, Behold, I am the Lord. I, I am the Lord. And I I share my glory with no other thing. No sacred cows. But today, we want to talk about this first one. That it's all about Jesus. So, as an introduction, let me just talk about this for a second, then we'll pray, and then we'll dive into, first, into Colossians chapter 1. Um, who is Jesus? Because if we're going to say it's all about Jesus, we've got to know who he is, right? Would you agree? You with me? We've got to know who he is. Well, think about this. Uh, even his name is very indicative of who he is. Jesus, did you know that his name is the derivative of the Old Testament word uh, named Joshua? Uh, Yahshua, the Lord Yahweh saves? That his first name, the Lord saves. And then his title, Christ, means anointed. He's the anointed one of God who saves the world. Who comes, like we said earlier, to adopt us into his family. He was born over 2,000 years ago in a small agricultural town of a few hundred people. And did you know he was born to a teenage girl? To a teenage girl? A single mom, even? Who was unmarried. He was adopted by a blue-collar guy. Named Joseph. Anybody work a blue-collar job? So did Jesus' earthly dad, Joseph. His daddy, Joe, swung a hammer for a living. And Jesus' life, up until he was about 30, it was lived pretty much in obscurity. We don't know a whole lot about him. Um, as far as we can tell, he played, played in the yard with his two brothers, James and Jude, who later went on to write books of the Bible. He had some younger sisters. He went to school and did the things that normal kids do. He probably skinned up his knee. He probably uh, made mistakes. He didn't sin, but I bet you he made mistakes. I'll bet when he was swinging a hammer with his dad, once in a while he might have hit his thumb. Is that a sin? No, that's growing up. It's growing up into who he is as a man. When he got older, the assumption is, but we're not totally certain, he probably worked a job with his dad swinging a hammer as a carpenter. And if that's the case... uh, and, and where he grew up in Nazareth, he, he didn't have long hair. Did you know that? That's a myth. Jesus didn't have long hair. All those paintings are wrong. They take him to the assumption that because he grew up in Nazareth, he took a Nazarite vow. But if he had done that, he wouldn't have touched dead people. He wouldn't have drank wine. Um, he, he probably had short hair. But He was likely in good shape. He was a physical laborer. He had calluses, I'm sure, on his hands. He walked a lot, which probably made him in good physical condition. Isaiah the prophet says there was no beauty or majesty in him that would attract us to him. So Jesus looked like a normal guy working with a lunchbox and a tool belt every day with a hammer. That's who he was. He's a normal man. At about age 30, though, he began a public ministry that included preaching and teaching and healing and performing miracles. He ultimately was put to death because continually and repeatedly he declared, I am God. He did. And because he was and is. His resume is incredibly simple as a man He never married. He never had children. He never ran for political office. He never oversaw a large company or a large church. Well, he did always oversee a large church. He's the leader of the church, right? Never traveled more than a few hundred miles from his house. He never visited a big city other than Jerusalem. He never went to college. Yet Jesus Christ today is the most uh, well-known, most loved and hated, most thought about, most spoken about, most written about, most sung about, most prayed to person in the history of mankind. Yet his life was lived in obscurity. Furthermore, I mentioned it last week, we break time around this man's life. B.C., before Christ. And A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. History literally rotates around Jesus Christ. And even if you prefer B.C.E., before Common Era, so you don't offend someone, still, where do they measure time from? The same time we do, when Jesus was born. History literally revolves around his life. It's incredible. Today, there are millions, if not billions of people on this planet who worship him as God. That's who he is. And when we're speaking about Jesus, Paul warned us in 2 Corinthians, he said, um, in chapter 11, he said that there would be a lot of perspectives about Jesus, a lot of opinions, and a lot of false Christs and false impressions. In 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4, he talks about this. And Paul prophesied well, because uh, aren't there a lot of misconceptions about who Jesus is? There's a ton in our world. Well, today, what we're going to do in explaining and exploring that it's all about Jesus is we're going to look at the most eloquent, most succinct uh, dissertation in a few verses of who Jesus Christ is that has ever been penned, in my opinion. And you find it in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. And we're going to look at that together. But first, you can turn there, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll start unpacking Colossians chapter 1. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus, and thanks for your grace to us through him. Uh, Lord, I pray this morning uh, that that Jesus would be made much of, that through my words, uh, through our singing, through our giving, that in all of it, uh, we would make it clear by our actions and with our minds that it is all about Jesus. Pray you'd help me to make him a very attractive, Lord, because he is. And uh, pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. Uh, He's the enemy of of your throne, Jesus. And uh, he would desire to accuse us and to tempt us and to pull our thoughts and our hearts away from you. But Holy Spirit, instead, uh, capture our minds today and capture our hearts. It is truly all about Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen. All right, you got your Bible open? I've got it on the screen for you too. Let me read first, or Colossians. I keep wanting to say first Colossians. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Verse 15, Paul writes this to the church in Colossae. He says, he, speaking about Jesus, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, and he's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That's the word of the Lord. Let's unpack that. And as we do, I want you to see clearly it is all about Jesus. It all is. The first thing to note, and the first thing I want you to note is this. Our lives are to be all about Jesus. Our very lives are to be all about Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. He says, Paul writes, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The, the word here for image in Greek is the Greek word icon. W- w- what English word might we get from the Greek word icon? The English word icon, right? <laughs> it's not too hard. It's where we get the English word icon from. And, and it means a perfect representation. A one-for in the Greek. It means a perfect representation, a one-for-one one exchange. Paul is telling us, you know what he's telling us here? He's saying Jesus is God, that Jesus is God. And Paul's not the only one who says it. In Hebrews, uh, you might write this on Hebrews one, one through three. The writer of Hebrews writes, he starts his letter. He says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but these, in these last days, he's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus himself said in John 14, Have you been with me so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen, has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus himself declared himself to be God multiple times. But Paul's telling us here he's the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God. He's the perfect image of the invisible God. Jesus perfectly images God. In him we see a handful of things. Number one, we see God. We see who God is and we see who we are. In Jesus we see who God is and we see who we are. Let's start with the first half of that. We see who God is. You know, many scholars contend, biblical scholars will contend and tell you, and I, I tend to probably agree with them, that the only person of the Trinity we will ever see in eternity is Jesus Christ. Now, I hold that in open hand. Do I, do I know that to be sure? No. But as I study God's word, I think that's probably true. Because Paul describes the Father as spirit in, in 1 Timothy 6. He dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen or can see, he says. But Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God. Do You want to know what God looks like? Do you want to know what he acts like? How, how he would live? Look at Jesus. If you want to know God, look to Jesus. And by the way, I would commend you then when you speak of God and, and you know, you, maybe you're at work and you say, oh, God really blessed me with this. Name him. Name him. Jesus really blessed me with this. Why? Because Jesus did. And if you, if you point people to Jesus, they're going to see who God is. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Not only do we see who God is, we see who we are. Did you know that you and I were made in the image of God? Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27. God created us and he said, let us create them in our image. In our image, like him. Well, we bear God's image, but guess what? We did something Jesus never did and will never do. We sin. It's like taking that image, that perfect mirror of who God is, imaging, reflecting certain attributes of his with our life, and we take a rock and we crack it and we turn it into a funhouse mirror where we still reflect him, but we don't image him perfectly anymore. But guess who does? Jesus does. So if I want to know what my life should ultimately look like and will ultimately look like one day, I look at Jesus. I look at his patience. I look at his grace. I look at the way he loved people. We see who God is and we see who we should be. In Jesus, then, that your second one there, we see what God is like and what He intended us to be like. Like, what would life be like if, if everything was perfect? Well, we'd all be like Jesus. Now, we wouldn't have Jesus' power. We wouldn't be God. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, in character, we would be like Jesus. Wouldn't that be great? Life would be so much better. Well, one day, if you put your faith in Him, you will be like Him completely, forever. It's what he intended for us. The third thing we should see then is, is, is what God does and how we should live. When you look at Jesus, you see what God does. You remember those bracelets years ago? When I was in college, they had these bracelets, WWJD. What would Jesus do? And I was—I think I had one even, but then I started thinking about it. I, I, I might have even got it while I was in Bible college. And I remember thinking about it. That's really kind of dumb. Because it's not what would Jesus do. It should be W. D-J-D, not W-W-J-D. It should be what did Jesus do? If I want to know what I'm supposed to live like, what God does, and how I'm supposed to live, I should should look at the way Jesus did live. I don't need to think about what he would do. I already know. I, I, I need to look at what he did. He shows us how we should live. Well, Paul goes on after saying he's the image of the invisible God. He says he's the firstborn of all creation. Jesus says this in Revelation 117, he says, fear not, I am the first and the last. And when he says first, he means absolutely first of all creation. Uh, Paul says he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, when you hear that, you go, hold on a second, Josh, you just told me that Jesus was God. But you're saying he was created? No. No. And that's not what Paul's saying either. If a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, they'll tell you that. And and they'll tell you, they'll use this verse actually to say that, look, see, Jesus was created. He He was born first. He's the first part of creation. And what they'll do in their translation of Scripture is, they add, I think, six times, they add the word other in their translation. And in other words, that Jesus was created, and then he created all the other stuff. Except that's nowhere in the original text, in the Greek. And so it... If somebody, if a Jehovah's Witness would point to you, point you to this verse, then, then point him to the next one, which says, uh, for he created all things. He's the firstborn. Firstborn is, is a statement of his rank, of his priority. He's the firstborn of all creation. Uh, see, when we think of this, we, we got to understand the original context and how Paul used this word and how his hearers would have understood this word. Now, the Jewish people would have understood it. Um, So when he says he's firstborn, Paul is talking positionally. He's saying he was first. Now, let me see if I can close the gap here a little bit for you. So for me, I'm the firstborn of of four boys in my family. And you could rightly write. You could say, Josh is the firstborn of the Wyland clan. I am. But you know what you could not say? You could not say that Josh is the firstborn of all the Wylands. Like Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Do you know why? Because before me was my father, Tony. He was born before me. And then before him, my grandfather, Charles. And before him, my great-grandfather, Albert. And before him, my great-great-grandfather, I, I really like his name, Carl Julius. Isn't that a good name? I told Hannah the other day, she just rolled her eyes at me. I thought, hey, that's a good name, Julius. And I found out his, he was actually called Charlie, just like our son, Charlie. But, but they were all, and then before them, generations before. I might be the firstborn of the Wylands, the, of, of Alta, Iowa, but I'm not the firstborn of all the Wylands. I might be positionally first and before my three younger brothers, but I'm not positionally first and before everything. Yet Jesus is the firstborn positionally before all of creation. In other words, what Paul is saying is he was here at creation. He wasn't created. He was before it all. He was before it all. He, he is before all creation, and he is supreme and sovereign over all creation. Paul explained in, in no uncertain terms that, that Jesus was God and that He's the Creator. To put him anything below that is heresy. That goes in the closed fist. Jesus is God. He is eternal. He told, he, he told his disciples himself, he said, and the Pharisees, he said, "I am." <laughs> he declared he was God. You don't buy it? That he's the creator? Read the next line. Read the next nine. Uh, look at verse 16. For by him, all things were created. By Jesus, all things were created. Second thing you need to note, not only are our lives to be all about Jesus, but creation is all about Jesus. It is. Creation is all about Jesus. It was all created by him and through him and for him. Look, look at the text here. It, all things were created by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities now there's debate does that mean earthly kingdoms and well yeah does it mean uh, spiritual kingdoms yeah I mean, yeah that's the answer which one does it mean yeah all of them he's the creator of all all things were created through him and for him For, he says, therefore, because. Why is it therefore? For, he's God. He's the firstborn. He's the creator. Jesus is the creator of all things. And all things were created through him. In other words, or by him. All things were created through him. All things were created by him. You know, know, a question comes up when I hear that. Or when you hear that, a lot of times they go, well, okay, so you're saying Jesus is God, right, Josh? Yeah. He's first, right? Yep. You're saying he's the creator, right? Yep. And you're saying he created everything that exists, right? Yes. So what about evil? What about sin? Did he create those things? Well, let me adapt an illustration that John Calvin often used. This summer, as many of you know, I like to ride my bike. I go on a bicycle ride in the summer for a week's vacation. And I'm not exactly the best cyclist. I mean, you can tell by looking at me, I don't cycle all the time. Um, But I enjoy it. I really enjoy it. But one of the things that I don't enjoy about cycling is in the middle of the summer, when you're biking down the road and you on the hot asphalt, um, when somebody with a big truck has been in front of you on that road about three days before, and they fillet a raccoon. That's not fun on your bike. Because you, you go down the road and uh, you, you, you see the raccoon there and then you hold your breath and you can't breathe for about a quarter mile while you go past, depending which way the wind's blowing, right? It's, it's just nasty after it's been baking for a few days in the sun. Now, how many of you, when you saw that there, if that was you riding your bike, would turn and you'd look up at the sun and you would look to the sun and you would go, you stink. Unbelievable how awful you are and how awful you smell. Man, I hate the sun. Would you do that? So then why is it that when we look at evil and we look at sin, we turn to Jesus and do the same thing? See, the, the sun didn't uh, cause the stink. It's, it's just the sun in its great power and it, with all of its heat and with all of its light made manifest how awful that was in light of its brilliance and glory. When well, the same way Jesus, by his brilliance and glory, our sin... He, I don't know that we can throw that on him and say, you, you stink. It's just, if he wasn't so great, we wouldn't know how awful and nasty our sin really was. And how, how, how awful evil is. If it wasn't for the fact that God was so good, I don't think we'd understand evil to begin with. All things were created through him and for him. I'm, I'm not sure there's a better way to say that. All things are created for him. In other words, Jesus is the owner of all things. Ann and I drove past a farm the other day, and on the sign it said, Owner, God. <laughs> they had a name on the farm, and then it said, Owner, God. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's right. He's got it. He could write, Owner, Jesus. All, he, he's, all things were created for him. You see, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. Are you seeing this? It's all about Jesus. Look at verse 17. He's before all things. If you're wondering about his, uh, his eternal attributes, his, his eternality, there it is right there. Jesus is before all things. And in him, look at this, all things hold together. All things hold together. Jesus, is, I can't talk. Jesus sustains. Say that 10 times fast. All things. Jesus sustains all things. He holds it all together. Now stop for just a minute. Do you know where Paul's writing this from? He's writing from prison. And and Paul writes to him from prison and he says, "Oh, by the way, Jesus is in total control. He sustains all things. He holds everything together." Really? Yeah. He does. And in fact, it's not just in terms of our life, but how about, we're, we're talking about creation being all about Jesus. I've shared this with you before, but i got to do it again. Do you know back in the 70s, there was a guy by the name of Lee Chestnut? You ever heard of him? I, I really hadn't either until I read. But he, he wrote a book called The Atom Speaks. You know the atom, right? The little particle makes up all matter. He wrote a book called The Atom Speaks, and here's what he wrote. He said, consider the dilemma. Get your scientist hat on, right? You with me? You got to think. Yeah, yeah? Consider the dilemma of the nuclear physicist when he looks in utter amazement at the pattern that he has drawn of the oxygen nucleus. Just the nucleus of oxygen. Just, just one element. For here, he says, are eight positively charged protons, closely associated together within the confines of this tiny nucleus. And with them are eight neutrons. So a total of 16 particles, eight that are positively charged, and eight with no charge. Now, if you're not a scientist or a physicist, you think, ah, big deal. Who cares, Josh? Come on, keep moving. But hold on. He keeps writing. He says, earlier, physicists had discovered that like charges of electricity like, and like magnetic poles repel each other. You ever taken a magnet and you put the two plus ends together and it pushes together, right? and the entire history of the electrical phenomenon he writes was built upon these principles it's known as Col- Columns' law of electrostatic force the fact that when there are like particles together they repel each other so scientists start to wonder uh, all these all these positively charged protons and uh, neutrons a positive charge why, why isn't this why is this thing holding together why isn't it repelling from itself right why isn't that happening? Chestnut goes on to describe experiments in the 20s and 30s where powerful atom smashers were used to fire protons into the nuclei of atoms. Those also, experiments excuse me, also gave scientists an understanding of the incredibly powerful force that holds protons together within the nucleus. Scientists have dubbed this force the strong nuclear force. Brilliant title, isn't it? but they have no explanation of why it exists. Some call it nuclear glue. In fact, one of the physicists who developed the Big Bang Theory, not the TV show, but the the theory, he wrote this. He said, uh, the fact that we live in a world in which practically every object is a potential nuclear explosion without being blown to bits, he had no explanation for it. Carl Darrell, he's a physicist, or was a physicist at Bell Laboratories, he wrote this. He said, I'll summarize, he says, do you grasp what this implies? It implies that the massive nuclei have no right to be, massive amount of nuclei have no right to be alive at all. Indeed, they never should have been created. And if created, they should have blown up instantly. Yet here they are. Here's what he writes. He says, some inflexible inhibition is holding them relentlessly together. Might I suggest to you that that force holding them relentlessly together is none other than the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. For he holds all things together. Every single atom in our universe, there's no reason for it to be held together other than Jesus Christ. He's, he's the nuclear glue. We should put that into a song and sing it. He holds all things together. The Bible teaches that Jesus upholds all things, that in him, all things consist. In him, everything holds together. Now hear me, you know, what, you know what's incredible? As Peter teaches in his letters, he says that someday the Bible, in the Bible, it says the earth is basically going to melt with fervent heat. I wonder if that's the day that Jesus takes his sustaining hand off of creation. He holds all things together. All of creation is about Jesus Christ. you get it? It's all about Jesus. Small wonder then, that in verse 18, if he's the one that it's all about and all things hold together in him, it's a small wonder uh, that he's called the head of the church. Who else would it be? See, the church is all about Jesus Christ. It, he's the head of the body, Paul writes, verse 18, the church. In other words, that one way you'll hear me say this all the time Jesus is our what? Senior pastor. He's our senior pastor. I'm not. This is his church. I'm the lead pastor here, right? I get to serve under him. But Peter tells us in, in chapter 5, verse 4 of 1 Peter, that he is the chief shepherd. And when he gives instructions for the elders and pastors in 1 Peter chapter 5, he tells, lead in such a way so that when the chief shepherd returns, he'll be pleased. Because it's his church. He's the senior pastor. He's the head of the church. Paul writes in Ephesians, he's put, God has put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. He's the head of the church. There it is again. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one to rise from death, never to die again. He's a totally new class of person. <laughs> we will never die when you're in Christ. He's the first to rise in an immortal body. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 20. The fact that he's, he's been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. That in everything he might be preeminent. Loved ones, Jesus is first. Why no sacred cows? Because Jesus. (laughs) Why do all people matter? Because Jesus. Why, uh, Why did God write it all down? Because Jesus. Why are we sent to love? Because Jesus. He is first. He's first in everything. He's preeminent, Paul writes, in everything. In our church, in history, in music, in politics. Paul here is describing the all-surpassing supremacy of Jesus Christ. It is all about him. Let me ask you a question. First place. How many people get first place? Indy 500 this year. Who finished in first? How many people? Tell me. One. One. One person, and his name, I didn't know him, I had to look him up, Alexander Rosie or Rossi. Some of you may know, I don't. In the Boston Marathon, how many people finished in first place this year? One. In the Central Division of the National League, who, how many teams finished in first place this year? One. And they are the Cubs. Do you get the point? There's only one first place. Jesus must be first in everything. Paul goes on and he says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The fullness of God. In other words, Jesus is totally God. He's fully man, but he's also fully God. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, we're reconciled to God because of the work of Jesus on the cross, nothing else. See, salvation is all about Jesus. Do you got that? I don't know your background. I don't know where you grew up, what church you might have grown up in. Um, many of us have come from different backgrounds. But you need to hear this. Salvation is not about the church. Salvation is not about following rules. Salvation is not about getting it Right. Salvation is about fully and completely Jesus Christ. He got it right for you because you never did and never will. Neither did I, neither will I, but Jesus does. It's all about his grace. Salvation is all about Jesus. See, look, he, he, he reconciled all things to himself. Notice here, it doesn't say that, 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 um, It says people are reconciled to God. It doesn't say that God is reconciled to people. God never changed. We did. We sinned. We walked away. We're the ones who have to be reconciled to him. And Jesus is the one who does that work. We sang about it this morning, right? By this we are saved. Christ died for our sins. Friends, if you've never put your faith or trust in Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. You may have grown up in the church. You may have grown up in this church. You may have been here every Sunday for the last 30 years. But guess what? If you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can spend your lifetime in church and eternity in hell. And you will, unless you turn in faith to Jesus Christ. That's that's not me being mean. That's me being loving and telling you the truth. Trust him. Turn to him in faith. Repent of your sin. Look, it says to reconcile to himself all things. That doesn't mean everyone is or will be saved. It means that Jesus cleared the path for anyone to come to him. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter where you... It doesn't matter. Turn to him. He'd love to call you his friend. He does this by making peace on the cross. See, making peace... uh, Because of the work on, on the cross, God's enemies are made to be his friends and his family. Verizon stole that from Paul. We become friends and family of God. Friends and family plan, right? I know, bad joke. But nonetheless, I got you with me. It's because of Jesus that, it, that we're his enemies, but we're made his friend. We're adopted into his family. He is your only hope, loved ones. Your only hope. Trust him. No social club, no good deeds. Nothing will ever add up. You need Jesus Christ. See, look at verse 21, and you. By the way, if you got your Bible, you got a physical copy of your Bible, circle you right there. Then draw a line to the margin and write your name with an arrow back to you. You. If you got an app, highlight it. Leave a note. You. Fill in your name. So I'll read it to myself. And you, Josh, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Guess what? All of us fit under that You. We were all his enemies. And yet while we were still his enemies, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. What kind of friend is that? It's, it's a perfect friend who lays down his life for you and for me. You know what this means? Again, all people matter, right? It means when, when I look out and I see someone I disagree with, or someone who lives a life different than mine, or, or who I see and they're just totally off the deep end, I have to look at them and I have to go, um, you know what, yet by the grace of God, that's me. Because I too, I was once alienated and hostile in mind. I was doing evil deeds. If it wasn't for the Lord Jesus Christ, but go I. There's a guy by the name of John Bradford. He died in 1555 at the hands of Mary Tudor, Queen Mary, Bloody Mary. Because she killed all those who were in opposition of the Catholic Church. And, and John was, was a preacher of the gospel, and he was burned at the stake. But one of the things he would often, thats discredited to him, that statement. When he would see criminals being led away to their death, he would say, he, he would pray for them. And he'd think about them, look at them, and he'd say, uh, but by the grace of God, there go I. Because he knew in his heart were the same evil desires, the same sin that led them to their uh, horrible end, were, were alive and well in his heart, if not for the grace of Jesus Christ. And they're alive in mine if not for the grace of Jesus Christ. you get it? It's all about Jesus. Salvation is all about Jesus. And finally, it's just, it's all about Jesus. I don't know how else to say it. It is all about him. It is all about him. Loved ones, I talked earlier about being first. And as a close, I would submit this to you. Until Jesus Christ is first in every area of my life, in every area of our church, I will never experience the joy I was created to know. Never. Until He's first in my thoughts, until Jesus is first in my speech, until Jesus is first in my home. Until Jesus is first in my sexuality, until Jesus is first in my finances, until he's the first thought in my text messages, until he's the first in my family, until he's first in my friendships, until Jesus Christ is first in my character, I'll never experience the joy I was created to know. Until Jesus Christ is first in my media choices. Until Jesus Christ is first in my diet and in what I choose to eat. Until Jesus Christ is first in my relationships. Until he's first in my health. Until he's first in my actions. Until he's first when I get on the internet. Until he's first when I go to the movies. Until he's first in my marriage or first in my singleness. Until he's first in my time and on my calendar. Until he is first in my job. Don't check out until he is first place, the first place I turn after I sin, until he's the first one I call on in need, the first one I thank in blessing, until Jesus is the first thought when I'm sinned against, until Jesus is first when I'm driving my car behind that idiot, until he's first in my thoughts about that guy I'm driving behind, until he's first in what I look at, until he's first... My first thought when I'm forgiven until he's first when I'm alone, first when I'm with others, first when I lose, first when I win, first in the church, first in my 110 group, first in the youth group, first at school, first at play, first in my giving, first when I set my calendar, first when I set my calendar for Sunday mornings, first in my worship, first in my planning for the future, first on the golf course when I miss the gimme, First when I speak of other people. First when I pay my taxes. First when I pray. First when I look in the mirror. First when I choose what to wear. The first thought when I see my sin. The first thing I'm thankful for. The first thought when I consider my mortality. First in my sickness. First in my suffering. First on my Facebook profile. First when I don't understand. First in what I listen to. First in my pain. First in what I believe about myself. First in how I raise my kids. First in my joy. The first one I submit to. My first thought in the morning, the first one I turn to in repentance, first in my motivation, first in glory, first when I'm confused, first in my studies, the first thought when I consider others, first in my business dealings, first in everything. Until Jesus Christ is first, you will never experience the joy you're created to experience and no. Let me ask you this, what burden are you carrying that he couldn't carry better? (laughs) Your sin, your hurt, your heartache. What problem are you facing this week that you cannot afford to face without complete and continuous dependence on him? What sin have you been struggling with that you wouldn't renounce in a heartbeat for his glory? What area of defeat have you been circling in that you wouldn't choose in this moment to make him first in all things? Over and over in this passage, all things, all things, all things that he might have first place in all things. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Lord, he is first. And sadly, in our our sin, in my own sin, um, we fail to keep him first. I pray that the reminder that it is all about Jesus would be a reminder to us as a church family and how we do ministry and care for and love people and also just in how we live as individuals. That list could have gone on for the next three years, Lord, and uh, without taking a breath, and we still wouldn't come close to everything, Jesus, that you must and desire to be first in. I pray for those this morning who uh, have have never trusted you, Jesus, who've never... um, stepped over that line of faith and repented of their sin uh, to give you control in their life? Might today be the day that they do that, that they just simply acknowledge their sin before you and turn to you in faith. And I pray for the rest of us, myself included, that you'd help us to continue to repent. Jesus, to continue to look to you first in all things, especially in our church and in our lives. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his love for us. It's pretty humbling. We pray all this through him. Amen.